You can be seated, except the kiddos, you can be dismissed. Good morning. Uh, my name is Nathan. I'm uh, one of the pastors here at Restoration. It's my joy to serve you in God's Word this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 9. Um, I forgot to get the page number. Somebody want to shout it out? Uh, the page number in your pew Bibles is 865-ish or 6-ish. Uh, one of those. Yeah, it'll be 865, 866, 867. One of those. Uh, 866. I told you I was close. Uh, good. Let me pray for us. I'm going to move this forward. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, God, for the testimony of our sister Hong. Thank you, God, that you save people. Thank you for churches where they're baptized into, where they can come together. We can come together to be reminded of your word, reminded that there is life in the world. We're surrounded by so much death, God, and we thank you for life. Orient us towards Jesus, who is life now, we pray in his name. Amen. Well, imagine uh, standing on an elevator and going up and down or elevator. You're not on there long, and someone were to see you holding a Bible. And uh, they see that Bible and they ask you, which I've been asked before on an elevator, what's that? And you were to say to them, well, it's a Bible. And they were to say back to you, well, what's it about? I wonder what you might say. What's it about? It's a big book, right? 66 books, 66, we might call them chapters in the larger book of the Bible, 66 of them, some 1,200 pages. Uh, we've got fantastical tales of global floods and men rising from the dead. You've got uh, amazing poetry, you've got wonderful, faithful history, you've got uh, all kinds of other things like uh, wonderful narratives and adventure-filled stories. Uh, I just read a book uh, a few weeks back that talked about how the Bible has transformed Western civilization, uh, how uh, it has inspired people to create technologies that have literally changed the world, how the Bible has inspired people to create universities and libraries and uh, hospitals and orphanages. Um, and so it's a wonderfully big and complex book. But again, there you are in the elevator and someone asks you, what's it about? Well, here would be my answer. My answer would be it's about Jesus the Christ. And someone were to say back to me, all right, well, what's Jesus Christ about? I would say back to them, well, he's about life. He's about exposing what life really is and exposing to the world what not only what life is, but by extension, what uh, death is, what it looks like to have death in the world. And so we see in the book of the Bible, the very beginning, how God creates this world and he fills it with all kinds of things so that mankind who's created in God's image would be would able to be flourished, would have everything that they need to live and to move and to have their being. But at the very beginning of the Bible, we read that man rebels against God and that's where death comes in. And yet right after that, we see that God says, he brings a promise that there's going to be one that's going to come and it's going to crush the head of, a, of death. And life's going to come in his place. God promises to still bring in life. And that's what the first half of the Bible is about. What we call the Old Testament. Those first 39 books. It's about a testimony of how God works amongst the people and he gives them all kinds of blessings. And yet what actually happens is those people choose to serve the creation instead of the creator. That's the first half of the Bible. And yet God still promises there's this one that's going to come that's going to bring in life. And there's a small community inside that first half of the Bible where they keep looking for this one that's going to come. 
And that's what the New Testament is about. The second half of the Bible. Those last 27 books. It's about the appearing of Jesus the Christ. The one that was promised from the beginning. That's why it's a cohesive whole. It's not a rambly collected uh, books of the Bible. They're all put together to create one story. Jesus Christ comes and he does exactly what God said he would do. And Luke, the book that we've been studying now since last September, we'll study it all the way to to December, Lord willing. We've been seeing the documentation of Christ, Jesus Christ. We've been learning his teaching. We've been seeing what his life is like. uh, And we've been going line by line to see what it says, how we actually find that Jesus does, in fact, bring life. We see that he preaches the way that he's bringing life oftentimes is through his preaching of the word. And life comes in its place. And so the Bible presents Jesus not as a prophet, not merely as a prophet, not merely as some teacher, some social worker, but as God in the flesh. Now you'd think that when he shows up, that all of these people would want to be part of his kingdom. And he does. He has a lot of people, a lot of crowds coming around him, trying to understand him, trying to get inside of what he's trying to do. Uh, But just like the Old Testament showed us, most people are interested in Jesus like they would be interested in a good movie. You know, he's, he's interesting. He's entertaining. Uh, you kind of be interested in to kind of show up and maybe listen to some of the things that he might say. But we find that as the story goes on, only a few are interested in actually denying themselves, taking up the teaching of Christ and following. We find that only a few are actually interested in doing that. And Jesus is not surprised by this. Uh, in fact, when he was born, it was said of him that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. That's one of the most important parts of his ministry. Thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. Jesus says himself in Luke eight seventeen. we saw this a couple weeks back. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. In other words, in other words, you find out who you are and what you're about based on your response to Jesus and his and his message. And here this morning in our passage, Jesus will do something that he hasn't done before. He's going to take this power and authority that we've been seeing and he's going to share it with his disciples. So we'll see this morning. He's going to take that power, that authority as the king of the kingdom and give it to those disciples. And those disciples are going to be sent out into cities and villages to heal. We're going to see why in just a moment as I read the passage. So let's go ahead and take a look at that passage and see how Jesus is the great revealer. Look at Luke chapter 9 verse 1. And he called the twelve together and gave them power and authority over all demons. And to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. And he said to them, take nothing for your journey, no staff, nor bag, nor bread, nor money, and do not have two tunics. And whatever house you enter, stay there and from there depart. And wherever they do not receive you, and when you leave that town, shake off the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. And they departed and went through the villages preaching the gospel, and healing everywhere. All right, let's stop for a moment to evaluate this. We need to see this kind of good Bible study method. We need to understand what's going on here. This is a narrative. This is a narrative, so it's describing what happened. It's not necessarily telling the reader what to do. It's describing what has happened. And from what we see happen, there we wait against the rest of Scripture to know what we, the reader, need to be doing, how we need to respond. But what happened here? What exactly happened? We'll circle that word gave. Really important word. That's the verb there. Jesus gave his power and authority. Really important. Jesus calls the 12 disciples together. Now, it's important that you see this is not the larger group. 
Remember we've learned about Joanna and Susanna and all those other disciples that are following him. This is just the 12. He calls the 12 and he gave them power and authority to preach the word and to have power over demons and to cure diseases. So Jesus has the authority and wonders of wonders. He shares that power and authority with his disciples. Now, most people that have power and authority, and especially those that have power and authority like Jesus does, they try to hoard it. They try to get more of it and hurt people with it. But we find Jesus, he's the kind of savior that is willing to dispense his power and authority to others that others might know and see it. But make no mistake, as these disciples go out and they preach and they heal, they do so in the power and authority of Jesus, not on their own power and authority, in Jesus's power and authority. In and of themselves, they would be able to accomplish nothing of note. But in the power of Christ, they're able to do much. Now we see, if you're a slide down in chapter 9, verse 40, this power seems to be kind of temporary. Because we see in chapter 9, verse 40, they're unable to cast out a demon. Uh, later in the, at the end of the book, in chapter 24, verse 49, they're told to wait on the power of the Spirit to go. And so it seems as though Jesus is giving this power and authority as a kind of temporary measure for this mission. But we see in verse 2, Jesus gives power and authority, and he sends them out. That word sin there is, is the Greek word apostello, where we get our word apostle. And so uh, apostles are the sent ones. And what are they to do? What are they sent to do? Well, again, verse 2 and 6, preach the gospel, heal everywhere they go. And Jesus gives power and authority to the apostles to preach, heal everywhere they go. And note, as they're going, two things. First off, note the fact that they need to travel light. We'll come to that in a second. Uh, Secondly, whoever, as they're going, whoever, when you come into a town or village, somebody receives you, you stay there. But all the people that don't receive you, he says that you need to have this testimony against them. Shake the dust from your sandals against them. In other words, Jesus is saying is his disciples are carrying Jesus's message. Therefore, if you don't receive them, you don't receive him or his message. Therefore, they need to testify to those people that don't receive Jesus and his message. The fact that they're under Jesus's judgment. That's what that's meant to indicate when they shake off the dust from their feet. Now, we need to ask the question again. Why is Jesus doing this? Why is he sending them out? And why is he sending them out now? And why is he sending them out like this? Well, Jesus is doing this, friends, to reveal, to manifest what is hidden. I've already said that already. We've seen that numerous times in Luke. One of the most important parts of Jesus' ministry is to expose what people really are. It's part of what he's doing. And that's why he's sending them out. To expose whether or not people are part of the kingdom of God. Therefore, they're part of life, eternal life. Or expose them to the fact that they're... Part of the kingdom of this world, kingdom of man. So therefore part of eternal death. And we get an even better look at this uh, uh, epic, this sort of instance of what Jesus is doing to send him out by taking a look at another gospel. The gospel according to Matthew, which would have been before this one. Matthew, also known as Levi, was one of Jesus' disciples. He walked with Jesus. He was one of those 12 that went out. He writes an account. And there he tells us even more about this instance of being sent out. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 5 to 7. And here's what it says. Uh, Jesus says there, These twelve Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the Gentiles, and enter no towns of the Samaritans, but rather, go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
So Jesus goes on and then he says, verse 16, Behold, I, I am sending you out as, a, as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. And then Jesus goes on to talk about how some of those lost sheep of Israel are going to be terrible to them. Chapter 10, verse 25. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, which would be a false god, so that which he's saying they've called me that, how much more will they malign those of his household? In other words, how much more difficult are they going to be to you when you go out? And then we get this summarization in verse 26. This should be familiar to us. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. And so Jesus is sending out these disciples to preach and to heal, to cast out demons, but they're only to go to the Israelites at this point. Only go to the Israelites, not to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, only to the Israelites. And most of those Israelites, it seems, are not going to be kind to these disciples. Some will, some will be changed. Most, it sounds like, will not. But these disciples, as they go out, they're not supposed to fear as they go out uh, because... Christ's power and his authority is going to be with them. And also, as they go out, these instructions on traveling light, carry no bag and all that other stuff, that's meant to be part of their ministry of exposition, of exposing people. So in other words, one of the reasons he's having them to travel light in this instance, and later you'll see in Luke 22, they're supposed to travel heavy. So why travel light now? Well, because... He wants this ministry of traveling light to be another exposition of the people. If they reject these disciples' message, they're also going to reject them into their homes, which is just another way to show that God is against them as they don't receive them. They don't receive them into their homes. They don't receive them into their hearts, etc. And so this is really important. These disciples are being sent out to expose people as to who they are and what they're a part of. Now, imagine being a disciple the morning or the night before you go out on this great mission. What are you feeling? What are you thinking about? Now, I'd have been pretty intimidated in one hand, right? Jesus just told me, I'm sending you out of sheep amidst wolves. It's going to be tough, right? So maybe you're going to sleep, not sleeping much because you're a little intimidated as to what happened. But the, on the other hand, you're probably really excited, right? Because the power that you just saw that Jesus had to stop storms and to cast out demons, like you're going to get that. So, Little Mix probably not sleeping much the night before they go out, but they're about to go. Now, I, I realize that we've kind of been doing a little bit of eating a little bit of vegetables here. So just stay with me for a minute because I think we need to answer another question. Uh, I was bugged by something in the text this week, and I just really worked through it. Maybe you were bugged by it as you sort of evaluate it, uh, this passage in particular. And here's the question that I was bugged by, by reading this passage. Did you notice that Jesus sent them out? To preach the word, which we're told to do, but also to heal and to cast out demons. Something that we're not told to do today. Something that we as disciples today do not have the expectations to do. There's no other time in scripture where we as disciples of Jesus Christ have the command today to go out and to heal people and to cast out demons. Cast out demons. They have that there. You'll notice in chapter 10, just a little bit after this, Jesus vets the 72 and he gives them the same power and authority. But you'll notice after the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, after Jesus sends the Spirit down to indwell his people, never again do we see Jesus commanding his disciples today to cast out demons and to heal people. And yet we are still told to preach the word. Why? Why did he do that? Why is that the case? We do see the disciples... Clearly, Acts chapter 5, verse 12, clearly they're casting out demons, healing people. But never again, after Pentecost, after the indwelling of the Spirit, 
after the gospel is accomplished, never are we told to have the expectation that we as disciples can cast out demons and heal. Why is Jesus, that, Jesus doing that then, not doing that now? Here's our answer. You ready? The casting out and the healing of diseases, friends, were always meant to be signs of the kingdom coming near. Of it breaking in, finally. Remember what I talked about in the first half? The Old Testament was this promise one's going to come. Right? These signs, these miracles, these casting out of demons as they go out. Remember, they're only supposed to go to the Israelites at this point. These things were meant to be signs to attribute the fact that the stuff that they've been hearing about forever and ever has finally shown up. They were never, the miracles were never meant to be seen as normative for all of Jesus' disciples. But they were meant to be signs to substantiate the fact that God had uh, that what God had promised was, in fact, now being realized in Christ coming near. Jesus really is the king of the kingdom. The kingdom is actually being previewed in these miracles, etc. So once Jesus had died on the cross for sins, rose for sin, then sent the spirit inside the hearts of the believers. Now the spirit is able, as we saw last week, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Now that's able to happen. So that now, just as you saw with Hong, now churches are able to bind and loose in keeping with that spirit that is within them. And so the spirit working through believers as they preached, taught the true gospel. Now that's the great seal of the gospel to make it known that that's the real one, the right one. Local churches that are able to see the true gospel, hear the true gospel, bind and loose in keeping with that gospel. And so that does not mean, as some will probably ask me today, that does not mean that miracles don't still happen. They do. I believe they do. I believe that people are still healed today. I believe demons are still cast out today. But we're not given those expectations as disciples that we're able to do that. But instead, we see that because the gospel has been accomplished, now there is promises by the Spirit inside the hearts and minds of believers to uh, make clear what the gospel is and the fact that it has come near. It's been accomplished. All right. In light of those little vegetables... Let's now ask the question, what does all this mean for us as we evaluate the sending out of these disciples? We've seen that Jesus sends them out. They're only going to Israel. They're supposed to preach the word, cast out demons, heal folks. But we've also seen that we as disciples today don't have the expectations to cast out demons or heal people. So what is it meant for us? What, what, what's the response for us? What's the application for us? Two things. Here's the first one. The first thing I think we learned from this passage for us today is that we need to, as we learned a couple weeks ago, we need to take careful, we need to be careful how we hear the word of Christ. Take care how we hear the word of Christ. Remember, the people of Israel had grown up hearing the Bible taught. The people had grown up hearing the Bible prayed. Uh, this kind of thing. Most of them offered sacrifices. Most of them considered themselves in the good graces of God. And yet what Jesus is doing here by sending them out is sending these guys out to expose the fact that a lot of these people were in fact far from the king. They they were not part of the kingdom of life. So the preaching was done to expose, to reveal the hearts of Israel based upon their response to that message. You guys remember those four soils that we looked at two weeks ago? Those four soils, remember Jesus says the word goes out and there's four kind of Two people that respond in either three ways or one way, as it were. One, people just, the word goes out and people just outright reject it. Then Jesus said there's other times the word goes out and people will joyfully receive it, only to suffer and have their hearts be exposed for the fact that they never were into Jesus. And then Jesus says there's a third soil wherein the word goes out and people 
start to uh, uh, live for the cares and the riches and the pleasures of this world and their fruit never matures. So in other words, they never actually were in the kingdom. They just sort of seem like they kind of like to have Jesus but never actually bear fruit of Jesus. Those are the three that expose the one way of living, which is eternal death. And then Jesus says, then there's the soil where the word goes out and it bears fruit, 30, 60, 100 fold. Life, that is. So we need to take care how we hear the word of God. Just like these guys went out and they see how they are, who they are based on the response to the word. So in the same way, we need to be uh, evaluating our hearts and mind. How are we responding to the word of God? What's coming out? What's, how's the word exposing us? So one way you can do that is by evaluating the fruit of the spirit in your life. The Bible says the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, certainly not all of us have all of those things all of the time. Uh, We all know that. But do you desire to come under the control of the Spirit like that? Do you desire to have that in your life? Do you desire to do that? Uh, So, for instance, when the Bible disagrees with you or disagrees with our cultural norms, do you trust Christ by trusting his word more than you trust yourself or society by your just sort of do you just dismiss that word and just easily live however you please? Or do you desire to certainly wrestle with it, but come under control under it. Be submissive to that good teaching of Christ and his kingdom. In other words, when the Bible calls you to do something you don't like, which word wins? Which word wins? If the answer is often or regularly you win, namely you're not repenting and believing and trying to get up under whatever Jesus says for life, but you're regularly doing it yourself, well then friend, Jesus is not your king. You're the king. You're the functional king of your own life. No matter what your confession might be. Remember, Jesus sends these disciples out to reveal, to expose a people that understood themselves to be friends of God. And yet, in fact, part of their ministry was to reveal they were enemies of God. When the true word came, it exposed them. Paul would later write that the word of God, the proper preaching and teaching of the word of God is an aroma of life to some and an aroma of death to others. And so most of these so-called friends of God were exposed as being enemies, that they were in fact wolves in sheep's clothing. And the way they were exposed was by their refusal to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow Jesus, not repent, but instead just live how they please. And so this would be most evident later when these same group of people would later call Jesus to be crucified, murdered. And so take care how you hear the word of Christ. And so, friends, you should read the word, study the word, surround yourself with people that will do the same, that will love you enough to speak that word into you. When they see you straying, they love you enough to call you back into it. That's the kind of folks you need. And then watch how you respond to that careful, humble teaching of the word. Which leads me to the second thing I think we learned from this passage. The first one is to take care how we hear the word. But second, we need to Understand that those of us who are in Christ are sent. Right? I, I said that apostles were the sent ones, right? That's the capital A apostles, those 12. But guess who else is also an apostle? All of us that are in Christ. We are not capital A apostles. We are not part of the 12. We are not one of the 12, that is. But we are certainly sent ones. As disciples of Jesus Christ, followers of Christ, we too have been sent to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. 
Jesus called us to make disciples and to teach people to obey all that he commanded. He saved us, Jesus did. He has sent us to the nations. And so now we are the light of the world. We are now his mouthpiece. Our preaching the gospel to the lost is the way that he intends to win the world. By our preaching of the word. Robert Coleman in his excellent book, Master Plan of Evangelism. If you haven't read it, go read it. It'll take you three hours. It's short and fantastic. As are all the great books other than the Bible. Short and tight. So if you're writing that a books, remember that. But Robert Coleman says in his book, Master Plan of Evangelism, that the kingdom started by Jesus started by him calling a few men. He said, quote, his concern was not with programs to reach the multitudes, but with men whom the multitudes would follow. Men were to be his method of winning the world to God. Men were to be men were his method. Ian Bounds would also say, I can remember a few years ago going to a, a pastor's retreat of sorts. And there was about a hundred pastors in the room and uh, there were pastors from all over the world. And they had us to put our name, our picture up on the screen and, and uh, their church name, how many members we had, what our overall budget was. And they had us to list our evangelism budget. And I remember being, I don't remember what the number was, but it was pretty small. And it was like 1% or less than 1%. And I remember being so embarrassed that I was going to have to stand up and go, it looks like our church doesn't really care much about evangelism. Until I thought about this passage. Jesus, friends, did not consume vats of cash to start up a bunch of programs to minister to people with. That was not the way he did things. He invested in a few men who would teach other men who would teach other men and women and on it would go. People, not programs, were his goal for discipleship and evangelism. God saved you, beloved, with the wealth of his blood. He implanted the power of his spirit within you so that you might go, not just to one nation, but to the nations, in order to let it be known that the kingdom has, in fact, drawn near. The only resource we need is you. You're the most important thing we have. You know, I think about that with our music, right? People will sometimes say, "What you know? Do you guys have contemporary music? What, like, what kind of music?" So I, I want to do music in such a way as to let the best instrument we have be heard. Congregational singing, you guys singing. In the same way, you're the best evangelistic tool that we have. You, your life, your ministry, your resources, spreading the word. And I think about my job as a pastor. Ephesians four and eleven and twelve teach this explicitly. God gave leaders to equip you for ministry. My job is not to do all of the work for you, to set up programs for you. My job is to equip you to do the work of ministry. I need to be modeling it as a pastor. I need to be calling you to it. I need to be equipping you for it, which is part of what we're doing in this hour. But ultimately, Jesus called you to be sent ones. We all just go out with our own life and resources and ministry and people and connections and networks and just spread the gospel. And then as they respond, we gather them back in here into this room, just like you saw with Hong. So that they would then become part of us, that we might love them and encourage them, equip them to go out and just on and on and on it goes. I love every single Sunday morning thinking about the fact that there are churches all over the globe that are just being encouraged and equipped for the work of ministry. And that's what we're doing here. So we have to be reminded as we go out, friends, that we are sent out as sheep amidst wolves. Jesus says that. It's tough out there. It's hard. A lot of people don't want Jesus. But Listen, Jesus promises us to promises to be with us in our proclamation of the word. He promises to be with us. And so, Christian, I ask you, who's it going to be this week? Who's it going to be that you're going to talk to about Jesus? Who's the person that you're 
praying for right now? Who's the person that you've been trying to get to know? Not as a project, but as a person to love. So that they would know Jesus. Who is it? Who's it going to be this week? Who might we have later in these baptismal waters that we can baptize as a result of your sharing the good news with people? Who is that? Maybe it, an accountability this week. You guys could share a few names of people that you can pray for, that you might share the good news with. And friend, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and one of the reasons you're here is because you're one of those people. You're like, oh, this is why they brought me in here. Right? Listen, we want you to know we love Jesus. You are not a project to us, friend. We want you to know the life of Christ. That's why you're here. We want to love you. We don't want to convert you to some sort of cult. We want you to be introduced to the person and the work of Christ that you might know life. That's why you have been invited here. Well, the reality is these disciples do go out. And as a result of them going out, they cause a bit of a ruckus, it seems. Verse 7, we see that uh, uh, things get so noisy in the region that Herod the Tetrarch catches wind of all that's happening. We see that Herod, Herod is perplexed. He's kind of a local leader. He's perplexed. He thought he'd done away. The reason why he's perplexed is he thought he'd done away with John the baptizer. Remember that a few chapters back? John the baptizer, forerunner to Jesus, calling people to repent and believe for the forgiveness of sins. And he gets in trouble because he starts critiquing Herod about his uh, marriage habits. And uh, he, uh, John Herod brings him in. He has this other girl dance, and she asks for his head, and he literally chops his head off. John the Baptist is dead. And so he's wondering, I thought I was done away with this whole righteousness and preaching of repentance and faith and all that stuff. I thought I'd done away with that. Some people think that uh, the ministry of Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. Some people think it's Elijah raised from the dead, an old prophet from the Old Testament. And so the identity of Jesus, the reason why this is here, the identity of Jesus is starting to start to reach into the upper echelons of society. And that's going to prepare you for next week when Joey will get to preach much to my being bothered by this. I realized this week what text I gave him and I was a little upset. But after that, you get to hear from Joey preach a wonderful, that text next week is like the hinge of this whole book. And I'm a little bothered that I don't get to preach it. But nevertheless, come back next week. Joey's going to share with you this hinge of how the identity of Christ is the fact that he is who he says he is. That's going to come up. And that's why this little portion right here in verses 7 to 9 is there. That's why that's there. It's getting you ready for what we'll see, think about next week. But nevertheless, the apostles, they come back. All right? They've gone on their mission trip. They've come back in. Look at verse 10. On their return, the apostles told him, Jesus, all they had done. And he took them and withdrew apart to a town called Bethsaida. All right, so he sends the disciples out. Disciples come back. They're pumped. All this stuff has happened. And they're all rejoicing. And Jesus is like, y'all been working hard. Let's go on a pastoral retreat. That's basically what happens. So, guys, this reminds me, good little commercial for what we're trying to do in Central Asia with our friends there. They are generously sharing the word. And we're going to be sponsoring a retreat for them in August. If you're a covenant member of the church, you want to go, this is what we're going to try to do. Bring them in for this little retreat because of the hard work they've been doing. To encourage them and equip them to get back into the field and keep going. But if when we do this in August, listen, let's hope what happens with them. Sorry, let's, let's hope what happens uh, in, in the story with Christ happens to us. Because look what happens. They start to go on this retreat. They're going out into the desolate place, the wilderness, and look what happens. Verse 7. When the crowds learned it, that is that they've gone out, they followed him, Jesus. And he, I love this, he welcomed them. 
and spoke to them of the kingdom of God and cured those who had need of healing. Now the day began to wear away and the twelve came and said to him, send the crowd away to go into the surrounding villages and countryside to find lodging and get provisions for we are here in a desolate place. So they're in the kind of wilderness. But he said to them, you give them something to eat. They said, we have no more than five loaves and two fish unless we are to go and buy food for all these people. For where, for there were about 5,000 men. And he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. And they did so and had them all sit down. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to the heaven and said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied. And what was left over was picked up, 12 baskets of broken pieces. Now, if you're even remotely filled with, uh, familiar with Scripture, you've heard this story. right? This is the only miracle, by the way, in all four Gospels, the feeding of the 5,000. And so the folks, they're so stirred up by the ministry of the disciples, the ministry of Christ, they follow him out. Jesus can't get a moment's rest. The crowds are following into the wilderness. Jesus is, uh, got, he sees them. We learn in Mark that he sees this, the gospel according to Mark, another book in the Bible. He sees this crowd and he says, he looked, they look at like sheep without a pastor. And he has compassion on them. And so what does he do? Jesus goes, he sees this crowd that's following him out into the wilderness. And instead of going on his retreat, he goes and he teaches them. He welcomes them. I love that. That's what Jesus is like. He goes, he's got one agenda to go on a retreat and he sees that I'm y'all being honest. I'm going to whatever for a week mission trip. I'm coming back. You guys calling me. I'm like, y'all, I need to rest. Not Jesus. He just are glad they're there and he teaches them. He's healing people. Notice the tenderness of Christ to keep teaching these people about the truth. And so the text says that they're out in this desolate place. The sun is going down as he's teaching them. And the disciples are like, listen, Jesus, there ain't no Chipotle around here. No, 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 no food trucks around. Like we need to get these people some food. We need to get some food. What are we going to do? And Jesus is like, well, y'all heal him. And of course, the disciples are sort of in essence like, well, what do you want us to do? Like drive into town and get a bunch of snack packs, bring them back here. Like we can't do that. All we got is five loaves and two fish. What are we supposed to do? And I can't help but imagine Jesus having a bit of a smirk on his face. And saying back to them, sit them down in groups of 50. We'll take care of them. And he prays. This is one of the reasons, guys, this is one of the reasons why Christians pray before their meals. We see Jesus doing this regularly. He prays. And he distributes. I love this. He uses the apostles again. Because again, men were his method. He uses the apostles to feed those groups of 50. Fred or That five loaves and those two fish gets multiplied to the point, verse 17, circle that word, they all ate and were what? Satisfied. Satisfied. Five loaves, two fish multiplied to feed thousands, and they ate and were satisfied. Friends, Jesus satisfies. He sends and he brings satisfaction to those that hear and believe. Ultimately. But this, of course, is talking about just the food, which tells us that Jesus is interested in our physical bodies as well. But curiously, how much they have so much satisfaction, there's leftovers. How much leftovers? Twelve baskets. Not a coincidence. Number twelve is sort of a, uh, uh, an important number in the Bible. But nevertheless, what does this teach us? What does this event teach us? Well, first off, it reminds us of what we learned last week, that Jesus has authority over all things. He can speak and will things into existence because he is God in the flesh. But there's even more going on here. It takes us back to how we started 
this sermon, how Jesus is the point of the Bible and he is life. In a parallel account of this same story, in another gospel written by another one of Jesus' disciples, John, we read about the same group of people. If you want to flip over there, go to the right, John chapter 6, verse 26. Look what happens. We get some more information about this event and what came of it. They get fed, those 5,000, they get fed, and then they show up the next day. Here's what Jesus says to them on that next day after they're being fed. They've been satisfied the day before. They show back up. Verse 26, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs. By the way, there's another way in which we see the miracles are meant to be signs. Not because you saw signs, but you're here because you ate your fill of loaves, of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give to you. That's Jesus' favorite title of himself, son of man. For on him, the son of man, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, this is the work of God. that you believe in him whom he has sent? So they said to him, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to them, well, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he, is he, circle that, he, who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus knows the motives of this crowd. Jesus knows they missed the sign of his feeding them bread in the wilderness. He knows they just want another meal. That's why they're showing up. They just want another, another free meal. But Jesus graciously uses this as an opportunity to teach them. Don't try and get the physical bread, guys. Labor for the food that never perishes. The crowd says, like, cool, we're into that. I want some of that. How do I get that? And I love what Jesus says. Guys, this is so important about salvation. He doesn't give them something to do. What must we do? He didn't give them anything to do other than to believe, he says. And they ask him for a sign. And yet again, friends, don't believe that if you just would have saw some of the miracles of Jesus, you would have believed. Most people saw it and most of them didn't believe when they saw those miracles. Plenty did believe, but many didn't. But notice the crowd is making this connection. Guys, we need to be making this connection. Luke is making this connection for us about the whole Bible. Luke is making this connection between Moses, who gave bread to our forefathers in the wilderness. Here's Jesus in the wilderness giving bread. And Jesus corrects the crowd and says, Moses didn't give y'all the food, y'all. My father gave it. Note that he's calling him my father. My father. Wasn't Moses. It was my father that gave the food. And then notice the shift. For the bread of God is he. Like I said, circle that. The bread of God is a he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The man of friends from the book of Exodus was pointing towards a he that would come down and feed God's people and give eternal life to the world. And they're like, we'll take it. Give it to us. We'll have some of that. Sounds good. And that's the context when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. It's me. 
So the point of Jesus feeding the 5,000 was ultimately to teach them and teach us that Jesus, friends, is the only bread that satisfies all of our hungers. That's why. That's the point of this feeding. That's what Jesus is taking. That's the ultimate point of that feeding. You cannot lose sight of that, guys. Your perfect career will not give you the bread of life. A perfect marriage, kids, white picket fence will never give you the bread of life. Fame and fortune cannot provide you the bread of life. Uninhibited sex will not give you the bread of life. Being seen by society in a certain way cannot feed your soul to give you eternal satisfaction. The right amount of material goods, traveling the world, having the right spouse in traveling the world, with the right career, it will never give you the bread of life. doesn't mean they're not good things, but they were never meant to satisfy you, which explains so much of the angst of the world. This is why Jesus came. He came to fill up our souls, which are always hungering and yet never satisfied. These guys had eaten their fill the day before and they were satisfied and they come back for more, just like us a lot of times. They missed the sign when it was right in front of them. And guys, again, we can do the same thing. And Jesus goes on to explain to these guys later in John chapter 6, verse 47. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. There's the life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for for the life of the world is my flesh. And what's the response of this crowd? John 6.66. This teaching is too hard. We're out. We're done. And they walk away. Exposing, just as Jesus said when he sent those disciples out, that most people are not into Jesus for Jesus and the life that he gives. They just want to use him to get sort of what they want from him. So these crowds, they reject Jesus. And then one of the most poignant verses in the entire Bible, Jesus turns around and he looks at those 12 that he's been investing in. And he asks them a huge question. You going to leave too? And Simon, who got it wrong a lot, gets it right here. He looks back at Jesus and says, you have the words of eternal life. Where else would we go? Where else would we go? The reality is, friends, he did give his flesh. Jesus offered his flesh. And what he meant by that is he offered his life as a sacrifice for that sin that causes death. We can't pay off our sins with our good deeds. That's why Jesus says you can only believe. You have to believe on him, trust on him. The fact that he offered his flesh as the penalty, as the punishment. That's why the cross is so important to us Christians. That's why it's such a central thing because none of us can pay off all of our sins, all the death that we bring into the world. Jesus came down to be the bread of heaven. He came down to offer his life to pay the penalty for all those that repent and believe on him. 
And that's why Jesus could say right before he died, it is finished, it's done, it's paid for, for all that believe. And we know that it was received by the resurrection. The resurrection reveals that the fact that he really is life, he was who he said he was. And those that come to him, they can have that same resurrection life. To be full, to eat of him, that is, to feast upon him in faith. And so, friend, where will you go? Where will you go for life? Will you come to Jesus, eat and be satisfied day after day? Or will you, as the crowd did, say, this teaching is too hard. I'm going to go try to find life somewhere else. That's everybody in the world. We're in one of those two camps. And so if your friend, if you're willing to come to Jesus, find life in him, will you then bring others too to find life in him? Come, friend, to the bread of life. Come eat upon Jesus and be satisfied. That doesn't mean your life is going to be easy. Matter of fact, I'll tell you the opposite. It's going to be harder, just like it was for those disciples. But we're not living for today. Jesus gives us a promise for eternal life. And I can tell you as one who's testified to this, I had it all, friends. I had the American dream. I had a house. I had a car. I had expense accounts. I had it all. And I walked away from every bit of it. And I have 20 times more life today than I did then. Because of Christ. He's the one that gives me eyes to see the world for what's actually there. And I don't want to walk away from him. Because he has the eternal words. He has eternal life. Walk to Jesus. Come to Jesus. And then, friends, go and tell others that they might come and eat too. That we, that they might be satisfied. This is the mission of our church, friends. This whole passage sums up what we're trying to do at Restoration Church. Namely, to come to Jesus and to feast upon him, to love him in word and in deed and in prayer. And then from that strength that we get from him, we go and offer him to others. Helping people as we go. Inviting them into Jesus. So I hope that you'll do that. You have done so well. We see that in the testimony of our sister Hong. May it be many more. And may you, friend, find life in Christ. Our hope and our great reward. Because soon enough, the Bible tells us, not only was there a feast in the Garden of Eden, not only was there a feast in the wilderness, not in uh, Moses' time, not only was there a feast in the wilderness in Bethsaida, guess what? At the end of the Bible, we learn of another feast. In Revelation chapter 19, where we'll come to the marriage supper of the Lamb and eat with Him for the bread of life and enjoy Him forever. That's the meal we look forward to. That's why we have communion, to look forward to that meal, to illustrate our hope and our great reward. Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, forgive us for the ways in which we try to find life in other places. That we find it in you. That we come to you and eat of you in faith, and enjoy you, not just today, but every day. And may we love others enough to let them know about where life is found. May we go in courage and in boldness and invite them in. Help us, God. And thank you, Jesus, that you've come from heaven to feed us. And thank you for feeding us this morning. May we rejoice in you and find life in you this week. We ask in your name.